Welcome to Season 10 of Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I'm a former assistant director and your host. We're going to kick things off this year with Planet of the Apes, the 2001 version directed by Tim Burton and starring Mark Wahlberg, Tim Roth, and Helena Bonham Carter. At Rotten Tomatoes, the tomato meter score is 44%, and the critics' consensus reads, This remake of Planet of the Apes can't compare to the original in some critics' minds, but the striking visuals and B-movie charms may win you over. This film was clearly not a hit with the critics, more than half of them panned it, apparently, but that's not something we care about here at Below the Line. And furthermore, I was the DGA trainee on this project, so I'm really excited to catch up with some of my old crewmates. The first of those is making his third appearance here at Below the Line, Douglas No. You've enjoyed a 30-year film career as a makeup artist, and you did eight makeup for Planet of the Apes. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Glad you're here as well, Douglas. Next, Kevin Haney, you are also on the team doing ape makeup, and you're still working with makeup prosthetics after more than 40 years in the industry. Welcome. Thank you. Next, Steve Thorpe. You are an electrician on Planet of the Apes. You've also been working pretty much nonstop for the last 30 years, principally as a best boy electric. Nice to see you again. Oh, thanks for having me. And then finally, Ryan Minningham. Apes was your second film gig. You were hired as an office PA during pre-production and your credit as a stunt performer, which we're going to discuss. You currently work as a first AD and a director, which basically feels like I'm the only person here who left the film industry. Welcome to Below the Line. <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. Listeners, this is your spoiler warning for Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes. Let's start by talking about how everyone got involved with Apes. Ryan, talk to us how you came on board during pre-production. I was coming off the Grinch um, in that office with uh, Jason McGatlin as coordinator, Mika Saito. Uh, Steve Salata, we pretty much went from that to the apes and we started in an office off Pico, which was cool because you could see the Nakatomi Plaza and it was still fresh. I was there like a year and a half in to LA. So that was great. And then we were thinking, I'm thinking it's a Fox film. We'll be on the Fox lot. Lo and behold, we go to LA Center Studios for the first time, which is in downtown LA. It didn't even look like a place that had stages. I think the stages, stages were brand new. Uh, old oil building uh, that I think was built in the 50s. This was going to be our home for the next however long it was going to be. Kevin, Douglas, talk to me about how the Apes team came together. Well, I mean, I, I can start. I, it, for me, it was, uh, I came in a colleague, another makeup artist named Bill Corso. Uh, and we started testing uh, Paul Giamatti pretty early on, a couple of weeks uh, prior to principal photography beginning. So that was my inroad, which evolved and we can get into later. But uh, I started out tag teaming Paul Giamatti, who played Limbo, uh, with Bill Corso. So we started in the testing phase at Rick Baker's Cinovation in, uh, in the Valley. Where is Cinovation? Is it uh, North Hollywood, Burbank? It, it used to be on San Fernando Road. It's now a completely different building. Yeah. <laughs> Cinovation is no more. That's right. How did you get involved, Kevin? I was committed to it after Grinch. On Grinch, I, would, I did basically Jeffrey Tambor's makeup, and I think Rick had decided early on, Rick and Kazu, that's Rick Baker and Kazuhiro, decided that I would be doing something on it. And uh, I ended up doing, the biggest privilege was doing David Warner's makeup designed by Kazuhiro, and uh, there was testing, it's innovation. David Warner, who played uh, one of the apes, uh, Senator Sandar. And then a lot of gorillas, I think we all did. Uh, there were only really two gorillas in the whole picture that weren't uh, Michael. Clark. Yeah, and uh, and Carrie, the samurai gorilla, Hiroyuki Togawa. Yeah, all the other gorillas were basically uh, done by you know me and some other people. Uh, Kevin Grievous, I spent a lot of time with uh, working with uh, Will Huff and Denise Paulson. They were extremely complicated time-consuming makeups, beautifully designed, but you'd have to put these pieces over the ears and the ears were already under a bald cap and there was no registration. It was really hard, very challenging. And the foam was, you know, Rick Baker always makes sure that the foam latex is extremely soft and very tricky to apply. So it was, it was fun and a challenge. We're going to dive deeper into that as well. But first I want to check in with you, Steve. What was your background? How did the electric team come on board? Jack English uh, assembled the crew and, you know, he and Philippe Rousselot, the cinematographer, he had been working with Jack for a, a number of years and, you know, they 
they did well and they got, you know, an Academy Award with River Runs Through It and stuff like that. So I, I didn't do that movie in particular, but I've done a number of films with Philippe and Jack and we just kind of drifted in with uh, with Philippe. Briefly, I'll just give my background on it. So as I mentioned, I was the DGA trainee. I had previously been a DGA trainee on uh, Swordfish, the Hugh Jackman, John Travolta, Halle Berry film uh, with Basil Grillo, who was the second second. And so he was the second second on Apes. And I think there was another trainee, but I think she twisted her ankle, maybe when we were um, already out at the Pinnacles. So I missed a lot of the opening stuff for the stuff. But then I think because there was a need for someone quick and I already knew Basil, he endorsed me coming on board. And so I got to do uh, two feature films in a row. Before we talk more about the specific scenes and stuff, let's talk about some of the overarching challenges of this film. First thing I want to ask you guys about, talk to me about working with Tim Burton and his approach to filmmaking in general. Batman was just what I had in my head right before I worked with him. I knew the name, but I hadn't seen all of his movies. Uh, but Batman was one that I'm like, oh, that's Tim Burton. And I just remember him pulling up to you know the offices at the time, and I, he had those cool glasses, like light blue. And it was great to, to go on and then get a chance to see him work. You can go across the full spectrum with Tim. I mean, he's an interesting guy. You know, I don't know that you can just say, you know, one thing about how he goes at something, you know, that I remember in the first few days, they decided to do the, some of the, the real ape stuff, like with actual primates. And then that we went over to next door and they had these little pod spaceships that would launch out and they built an elaborate bunch of these pods and there was an effects guy that was incredibly disinterested in the whole process and he was in charge of pulling this lever that would open the gate or close the gate for the pod and they had these super expensive plexiglass domes on these make-believe space machines and he just wasn't paying attention he was smoking cigarettes on stage and and he closed that damn door right on one of those pods and shattered the impossible to replace plexiglass canopy on <laughs> these things and and we were just incredulous that he could f- screw that up and i walked around and i looked at him he was completely just unrepentant smoking his cigarette and i realized you know this guy <laughs> he's not going to be here tomorrow. (laughs) Anyway, Tim, when he would get frustrated, he'd pace. That was his thing. He'd pace back and forth. He didn't say anything or or yell or do anything like that, but you could see that he was just in a full meltdown because they had to figure out how to shoot the scene that they wanted to do in a wide master. And they had one fewer pod. I think they had three and then they had to do it the whole scene with two. And, you know, it was a bummer. And, and this may be too early. Um, when I got to do some stunt work, he we were on stage one night. It was pretty late, and stunts most stunts had gone home, and I was there paing. And they needed a Paul Giamatti hand when he grabs when he's going for that for that uh, spear on the ground. It's just a close up, and then Wahlberg shoots the ground where the uh, the grab you know where he's grabbing, and uh, I got to do that. So it was technically my hand getting directed by Tim Burton, and that just. <laughs> That just goes down as one of my moments. And uh, it was even funny because he spent, I mean, that we spent probably an hour on that shot. That's Tim Burton. What I recall, and it might be colored both, I, I was the trainee on this, and then I went on to be the uh, second second on Big Fish afterwards with Tim. And while Tim was always really nice to everyone, it seemed, there was this sense that you never really knew what he wanted to shoot at any given time. And so everything had to be ready all the time. And my takeaway on apes was we would have to get all these people ready just in case we were going to film with them, but then we might not. And then Tim might rap when he was done without really giving much indication that he was going to be done until it actually happened. Kevin or Douglas, you guys can probably speak to that as more. I mean, again, it seemed like we did a lot of ape makeup just in case Tim wanted to put somebody in a shot at that day. Yeah, that would be true. Uh, that would be good. <laughs> uh, and they were four and a half, five hour makeups too. And very, I'm sure that Ralph Winter, the, the executive producer with Dick Zanuck would definitely say that they were very expensive as well. Uh, but I never got any personal contact with Tim Burton. That was Tony G's, who was the basic supervisor and then Rick Baker's job. So 
I got to stand back and watch, you know, this friggin' genius work. And he's what I would call a flawed genius. I mean, I'm a big Tim Burton fan, but you give him more toys in the in the toy box and it gets more and more confusing. <laughs> this film is like one example. Like Batman, there's a focus. You, you focus on Batman. And from the very get-go, what we were filtering back in our little makeup trailers was that the script was problematic, that the script had gone through thousands of changes, that at one point, and I don't know whether we can say this or not, you can edit this out if you want, but at some point there were magic silver flying slippers, you know, and that kind of explains the tone problem that the actual script had. And it's intriguing because I've in watching the film again, even though, spoiler alert, you know, the idea that Thade's made it back to Earth somehow in this alternate dimension and has replaced Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, as Forrest Ackerman would say. <laughs> uh, but in some ways, the tone of that short scene in Washington, D.C., with apes in police costumes and civilians is closer to what Serling really wanted to do uh, in the 1960s. You know, he and Michael Wilson, their script... It, it's focused and it still has the political commentary. And it just seemed like even though Dick Zanuck had worked on the original and I'd worked with uh, Zanuck on driving Miss Daisy and cocoon. And it just seemed like they had like what I would call a Chinese menu. It's like a complete a la carte menu of what needed to be in the film, a shock ending, uh, spaceships and astronaut uh, apes on horseback. You know, an example of like something that was disappointing to me personally was when we were out at Lake Powell and we had the ape encampment and that set and the electric problems on that. Were you there? I was there. I mean, incredible outdoor light. Was that revolutionary outdoor lighting? Was that the first time they used the big balloons or? Um, It was pretty early in the game with the balloons. We had, you know, this guy, Eric, who was one of the, the first guys to make those balloons. And uh, balloons are always a problem when it comes to you know, <laughs> weather. And, you know, I mean, on Big Fish, I'm sure Skid can you know, relate the same individual and, and all of his balloons blowing away in, in, a, in a storm. <laughs> but, I mean, we got lucky. We got lucky in Lake Powell. I mean, we didn't lose any balloons, but they're, you know, they're a pain in the ass when the weather comes up. And, but it was a remarkable that the ape encampment in that valley, beautifully lit, beautifully set out. But then for some reason, the action sequence, they had catapults and they're not in the film. You don't see them in the film. They were catapulting like live fire rounds at them. And it's over in a heartbeat. And we spent, I don't know how long we spent out there, but it was very cold. And we were on this island in or this other shore on in Lake Mead, we had to take a ferry out over the lake and it was just cold and night shoots and day shoots. And, you know, I, I don't know how you guys got your equipment out there. Was there a barge or something? Uh, or? It, was, it was all barges and uh, a lot of grief, actually. A lot of, a lot of that power that <laughs> I agree. I think the uh, the first day we, we filmed those uh, ape effigies up on the on the rocks above that camp. And that was kind of a hike up there. And they got all that stuff up there with the uh, winches. And actually, I think it was uh, special effects or stunts that helped us out with that, with pulleys and, you know, all kinds of stuff to give us a break to so that guys wouldn't have to carry the, the heavy cable up the rock. That was very helpful of them. Ultimately, when I saw that sequence in the theater, I, I kind of got a little sick. I was extremely disappointed by what we saw out there we saw this incredible action sequence that they had worked on for so long. And of course, the other action sequences, you know, they're out at the Trona Pinnacles. The one thing that does strike me about this movie is that the apes makeup does come through. In other words, the close-ups on the actors and with the makeup they have and the expressions they show, I feel like as an observer, and obviously not someone involved in the actual work behind it, that that is well captured versus some of these other scenes that maybe the grandeur wasn't making to film. Douglas, Kevin, you guys talk to me more about what the effort that went into that and whether you do think all of that shows up on screen. 
Douglas, do you want to talk about the technicalities? Because Paul Giamatti is one of the more successful actors under it. I mean, he really moved that makeup. Yeah, I mean, you'll be able to speak more to it because you were closer to Rick and I was on Buffy the Weekend Slayer when, when you guys were doing Grinch. It worked. I mean, it was very, very well thought out. In fact, nothing less from Rick Baker. It was rather brilliant. You know, this is 20 years ago. And I know we're, we'll, we'll talk about Stan Winston was also bidding for that job. And Kevin and I were out the other day and I was telling Kevin that uh, on Galaxy Quest, Stan Winston was experimenting with the technology he was going to use to try to get that job that Tim Burton planted at the Apes job. Now, obviously, it didn't go to him. But even that was innovative and interesting because it was uh, magnets and rods, you know, and servos and yeah, some very heavy. It's it's obvious to me the way we shot this that Rick's approach was the right approach. But uh, I just remember those makeups were teched out like crazy, and they were so tight and specific, and the details and the you know particulars of each makeup were so well thought out and defined even before we started rolling. Yeah. And I think what tipped the scale towards Rick was that it was an organic approach. The problem with the Stan Winston approach is as brilliant as it is, there are some YouTube videos of his desk with his son, Matt, but he required a big backpack of servos to be hidden under the costume. An extra 30 pounds. Yes. And with Rick, he brilliantly created, he and Art Sakamoto and, Mark, and Mike Pack designed these dentures that pushed, it was like the old orange peel effect. You put an orange in your mouth and it turns you into an ape. And he would take the dentures and make them extremely thick. Then you would put those in and they would do the life cast of the actors, all of them with these dentures in. And then they would create the appliances over the dentures. When we put them on, we would put the dentures in, set the appliances, which were extremely, at that point, the appliances were very thin, extremely thin, paper thin. They were easily torn. They were easily damaged if you didn't treat them with the utmost respect. And the thing about Rick and his innovation crew, Roland Blancafleur, I think was his foam runner at that point. And the foam was the most incredible foam I've ever put on. You get the best of the best when you're working for somebody like Rick or Stan or Greg Cannon. You're going to have the best of the best. So that lowers your your uh, ability to excuse away any flaws or, you know, disruptions. It's all right there for you. And it's all as good as it's ever going to be. So, But this organic approach allowed a tremendous amount of flexibility, especially around the mouth. And the dentures did most of the work that we rely on prosthetics to do. It, it had, those dentures were out so far. And I remember people working with them with their dentures and not in makeup so they could speak. They had stunt dentures, yes, that they could practice dentures. And when they were going to ape school. <laughs> <laughs> Does uh, somebody want to talk about ape school there? I don't know anything about ape school other than what I've read. So I know it's pretty extensive. It was it was weeks for sure. They were in one of the stages that I, if I can remember, and it was everything from talking and walking or how they're going to move and. I wasn't in there. I would go deliver stuff there um, and then pop in and out. I know Cass came pretty early, early on to go. And Ape School continued all the way to the desert. I know Charlie Crowell, you know, they, they brought in, I, I forget the gentleman who was the Circuit de Soleil guy who kind of invented the loping and all that stuff. That was notary, right? Yes. Ape School was run by Terry Notary, if I'm not mistaken. And he's gone on to play King Kong and, you know, do a lot of motion capture. He's very big in the digital apes and wasn't he in the other apes that, that came out yes he's the head movement motion capture guy working in hollywood right now or one of them he doubled fade right i actually uh yeah fred blau and i did uh terry notary as fade gosh for almost five months which was a real treat because fred blau is uh one of the original uh, makeup artists i think he did three of the original planet of the apes and then went on to do this series so that was a treat doing Terry Not Notary as the Thade double for five months with Fred Blau. I just remember eating with everybody. <laughs> and and we were uh, sitting with Tim Roth one day and, uh, and being particularly careful with his food. And, you know, we were asking him about, you know, the process of eating with, with all that stuff on because it couldn't take it off. And he goes, let me just say, if you lose a piece of pork, 
down in your mask, you're going to wear it all day long and you're going to regret that. <laughs> and, and it was deep sorrow. And it was, it was very serious. You don't want a piece of rotting pork in your face all day long. And it was, it was hilarious, actually. Pretty good. Well, in terms of putting these apes together, and you alluded to it earlier, Kevin, with the four and a half hour makeups, talk to me some about how large the team was, all the behind the scenes effort that went into making these apes available. After Grinch, I don't think our department was as big as it was on Grinch. Uh, they kept the ape, the actual people in prosthetics down to about, was it 15, Douglas, the hero apes, 15? Yeah, I think between 15 and 20. And then... In the original movie, they made masks for background. They were very obvious because they used them in close-ups. And Rick said, that's not going to happen on this one. So he made some very incredible masks that could have been shot in close-up. But they were semi-articulated. And Bart Mixon was responsible for keeping like 50 masks. You know, So on top of all the prosthetic makeups, you had all these masks for background, but we had, we were in trailers, right? Yes. Even out at Lake Powell. And we would make up on the mainland and then take a ferry out to the island. And we were stuck there and without any facilities, if I remember correctly. And then you did your touch-ups on the fly. And I think there's some pictures of us all on a sandy, you know, embankment, you know, doing our touch-ups in director's chairs or lawn chairs or whatever. And the maintenance of these, even though they were bulletproof, there's a lot of like mouth stuff, picking pork out, <laughs> and uh, you know whatever was for lunch or for snacks. And I think we should also mention. I know the emphasis has been on the ape crew, but Mike Smithson and uh, John Blake did a ton of humans that have beards and hair work, and I forget who did the human hair work. There were a lot of wigs. And the humans look great, just like the apes. But that's a job you really don't want, is to do the humans in Planet of the Apes. <laughs> right. Oh, one story. I remember Paul Giamatti. This, I don't know whether you were there when he told this story, but he, he said he talked to his agent. And he said, uh, his agent said, uh, we got a part for you in Planet of the Apes. You know, you don't want to play an ape, do you? You want to play a human? He said, are you kidding me? I want to play an ape. You know? <laughs> And he just had to play an ape. And he's brilliant. Limbo is one of those characters, again, with the script. It's like, I get the arc and I get the stuff. And he makes a meal out of what was actually a craft service snack as far as the written word goes. But he takes it and runs with it. I think a lot of his lines are ad-libbed. A brilliant actor to watch. All the actors, actually. I loved watching. I loved making up and watching David Warner work. I, it was like working on British acting royalty. And he would tell stories about other British actors that can't be repeated here. But uh, <laughs> we all get a little gossip in the trailer. But it passes four and a half hours of time. And he was allergic to spirit gum. He has uh, very dry skin that gets infected very easily. But Rick was using liquid matted prosade to put the hair pieces on. So he would allow us, when you do foam latex, one of the tricks is to take a little dilute spirit gum and put it around the edge and that locks it in because the adhesive is thermoplastic. As it sits on the face, it starts to move. But when you lock it in with a little dilute spirit gum, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So he allowed us to use that. He never had a problem. And Rick has a great protocol where our actors are having moyance at the end of the day and uh, something called EDAP that I think uh, Jeff Dawn discovered uh, for the Terminator movies. And the actors are very well taken care of. They're still, I think everybody, I don't think there was anybody that had problems on the show. Uh, it seemed like everybody could deal with the ape makeup. I think most of the problems were, um, you know, logistical, but it was a huge set. I remember Rick, when we were on Grinch, he was hiring a lot of the people and earmarking people for different duties. And uh, he had a pretty clear idea, but he knew that doing an ape was very different from doing a who, because after Grinch, everybody thought they were, you know, a great makeup artist because they could put on a who face. And the apes were like, 
as Douglas will attest, they were they were a bear. Even Giamatti had little the hair work was very fussy and very designed and all the gorillas and Gabriel de Kunto, it was, that was his first job. He did uh, carry, uh, he did uh, main ape. And I remember people being a little upset about it. Gabriel was fresh in the union. Kazuhiro had only done three pictures with uh, Rick Baker, but he had already proven himself. And we had a lot of veterans like Fred Blau and I forget who else uh, was in that group, but there were just a lot of, well, uh, Lance Anderson did uh, the lead gorilla. Kevin, are we allowed to talk about uh, when Kevin Grievous broke his foot and Lance Anderson had to ride in the ambulance to the hospital with him to take the makeup off, or are we not allowed to say that? Kevin Grievous <laughs> or, or, or Michael? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. It was Michael Clark Duncan broke his foot, right? You can talk about that, I think. I, <laughs> I just did. <laughs> <laughs> that's public knowledge yeah that's that's it that's in the wiki that was a fun night i remember that i was there when that happened kevin i think you were there too when that happened actually i may have been i don't know yeah. where, where was that that was on stage at la center stages if i'm not mistaken yeah what's one of the biggest hazards about makeup on actors and stunt performers when they're actually doing work is that you have to go with them and if necessary remove the makeup while in the ambulance sometimes, or remove it at the hospital. Well, that's a good um, lead in to talking about the stunts, because there are these challenges that the stunt people are made up as apes as well. And there's a lot of work. Um, there's the running, there's a lot of wire work, hopping around and climbing over this over the sets. Let's just again, sort of acknowledge the amount of stunt work that went into pulling this off as well. I remember just one thing, and I don't know how many shots they used, but the the whole loping they did, and they had that track, and then maybe they just did it in Ridgecrest. But do you guys recall the track that they would drag the track and also put the put the apes on? And yeah, they dragged the track behind quad runners across the desert right after BLM made a point of saying you can't destroy the desert holly it's all so precious <laughs> and, and then we mowed the entire landscape clean of desert holly <laughs> with this track mat and then somehow all these blm people disappeared and you know we all know how that happened they had to dig a trench to put the camera in because if you look at that shot the camera's like under the apes cameras were still pretty big then they didn't have these smaller cameras that they have now and that was another part of it but i remember seeing that scene and being wowed you know it's like not only do you have people loping at full speed but you've got them on those tracks it was cool to watch it was very yeah. cool to watch that's one that kind of pays off the advancing of the ruins is pretty it was a neat set yeah it was a neat set and, and as you guys remember it washed away somewhere in december in a giant storm and they had to rebuild it and you know everybody got two weeks off and did they rebuild it at the at the quarry no no they rebuilt it in in trona pinnacles and the, where they were doing all that loping stuff and uh we had some quarry days, right? Didn't we have a couple of days at the quarry for some reason? And and it's pretty seamless. You've got three locations. You've got, well, you've got four locations. You've got uh, five. <laughs> <laughs> you've got this place out by Vasquez Rocks that they did some intimate scenes with the main characters. You've got Lake Powell. You've got the Trona Pinnacles. You've got this quarry in Sunland. And then you've got what? It, yeah, Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii. Yeah, big Island. Which was a trip. That was an interesting plane flight to go to Hawaii, though. It was a chartered plane, right? I got to go to Hawaii. Oh, it, was a, it was a jumbo jet. And uh, yeah, I hate those like cross the ocean flights. So I took a, a Xanax. And right as I was kind of going under from the Xanax, uh, the flight attendant got on the PA or on the, you know, and said, drinks are on 20th Century Fox. And apparently <laughs> I missed I missed some giant party. <laughs> there there was some crazy crap that was going down on that plane. And <laughs> And I woke up just as the plane was landing in Hilo. And, and I, it turns out I was probably happy that was the case. Yeah, I remember doing distro a little under the weather. Not under the weather, but drunk. But from that flight, <laughs> I remember going into the office. But I flew, I threw up on takeoff. Ian Couch sitting next to me, as you know. Ian Couch, one of our senior PAs on that one. But looking at me like I've never been on a plane before. It was just, I don't know what happened. Maybe 
Maybe it was that jumbo jet. Ryan, I think you were just excited. <laughs> I think I was. I'm like, I don't know how they major oversight letting me go on that. I can't believe it. Oh, you know what? It was actually a very generous thing. And I happened to be just next to Dick Zanuck when that whole conversation was going down with Fox. I just happened to be sitting next to him at the time. <laughs> I did a bunch of movies with Dick Zanuck and, you know, he had some weight with the studios and especially, you know, representing the directors that he produced for. And they didn't want to pay for Hawaii. Fox did not want to go to Hawaii, period. And Dick Zanuck got on the phone and he goes, you know, and was, I'm doing the best imitation I can. You know, I keep hearing no from you fellows over there. And, you know, we're doing a big movie here and I'm tired of hearing no from you guys. We're doing a, uh, an A-rate job here and we're going to Hawaii. And the next thing you know, we're on the tarmac getting in a jumbo jet. <laughs> I mean, he made it happen. He was he was that guy, that's for sure. And you couldn't have shot those lava fields anyplace else. No. And lava fields, no. even though they're really brief in the film, it's like they do create the whole idea that that is one more alien environment. And the jungles. We shot a lot of the, even though they cre recreated the jungle or I guess the jungle stuff was actually first. Those sets were amazing. All the sets were amazing. I just want so to good. out there right now. But the Hawaii stuff was a trip. Earliest call I ever had, 11 p.m. the day before to have to be <laughs> on set for a daylight shoot. It's like, damn. Yeah, so that's an interesting connection there. I, so I did not go to Hawaii, but you did the lava plains there and coming out of the jungle, but it was to match up with the jungle sets that we built on those stages at LA Center. Yeah, it was that one stage they had the jungle set on. Uh, sadly, that was right at the beginning of the movie we were prepping, and uh, that was the one death on that film was uh, a uh, scenic painter fell out of a scissor lift and uh, passed away from it. Sorry to hear that. I remember that, yeah. Well, let's talk more about that work at L.A. Center Studios. As we alluded to earlier, they were fairly new at the time, if not very new. I'm not quite sure what else had shot there before we got there. I know Metal Gods, which was Rockstar, which also had Wahlberg, so I don't know if that was before or after. Terminator shot there first. Oh, did they? Were they like the first one? Yeah, well, I, you know, I think Schwarzenegger was like rallying to be the governor, and he was like, oh, I'm bringing this to L.A. and all this <laughs> stuff. I just remember floors and floors of just empty floors and i would have to go hey we need some furniture go get some furniture and each floor was different it was like a movie set in itself it was just it was crazy and like they had the smoke hole or whatever you call the you know where they used to smoke down and the vending machines and it, it was so different and in fact the stages were built in the basement if i'm not mistaken and outside did they add them on i don't even know the logistics of that I feel like they were added on. They were, you know, there was the oil building. It was like a U or at least a right angle. And then the stages were kind of to the left. I don't know what it looks like today. I know they shot the ending there, though, you know, with them riding up in the motorcycles. It looks the same. The whole uh, Lincoln Memorial thing, all the steps are the same where they tumbled the spaceship down at the end of the. Right. That's all. That's all still the same. The big thing, Washington uh, towards the other side. And again, great production value. And I wish the whole film had been. They could have done half the film, you know, in the in in like the modern age, and that would have been intriguing as well. But that I think they were hoping for a sequel, maybe. For sure, only because I know they were putting together multiple endings. Unfortunately, that's a hard that Serling original ending, the Statue of Liberty. That's a hard beat to, to beat with, yeah. And and in this one. They had a tone problem. Whatever the writers were doing, they were making it up as they went along. I don't remember how multicolored our script pages were, but I think they were <laughs> one of those multicolored binders, you know, <laughs> cherry and salmon and all kinds of new colors besides red, green, and yellow. Double white. Definitely a rainbow script that we were working with. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not to denigrate, you know, the job of the writers and trying to, you know, when you've got a guy, you know, who's incredibly visually gifted, but maybe needs an organizational person at his side. You know, I am a huge Tim Burton fan, do not get me wrong, but you could kind of see the process, like you said, Skid, where he had great ideas you know like we'd show him isaac singleton and kevin grievous we'd do makeup tests to show him different ways they could be different gorillas and he'd go oh yeah that looks great a different ape 
And that was his big thing. It's like an ape with a wig, uh, ape cheating at cards with his feet. You know, it's like these were the little touch points of all the film. Ape City was in another incredible set. That was at Sony, wasn't it? Stage 30. Yeah. The big room. Well, one of the two big rooms at Sony. Yeah. And that's an incredible like the production design on this film far outstrips anything else of it. Yeah, the production design was by Rick Heinrichs. The, the production design and the makeup design, I guess, and the costumes. Oh, yeah, Colleen, yeah. We're talking about Colleen Atwood, costume designer. I remember one of the big challenges that we had as makeup artists was that the helmets didn't really fit the heads. And there's one scene in the jungle at LA Center Stages, actually, where the gorilla helmet kept falling off and it was like every attempt to pad it and get it in there and make it work was just really, really, really difficult. But, you know, the costumes again kind of make this, even though Tim Roth actually said at the end, he says, so I've got these amulets that I kill two full grown gorillas with and I'm beating on Mark Wahlberg for like five or 10 minutes and he's, and he's not got a scratch on it. Sounds like Tim. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we're talking about sort of, um, you know, keeping Tim Burton on track, I think it's a good time to put a shout out to Cadley Fraunfelder, who was the first AD. He's done a lot of Tim Burton films from your different department perspectives. What's your take? She was really good. Cadley's great. And she's still working. Well, I just, I don't know if I can say the title, but, She's still at it and she's still doing a great job of uh, letting artistic people be artistic and letting crew people be crewish <laughs> <laughs> and just doing a great job of what she does, because that is part of the corralling process. It's like you've got a call sheet, you've got stuff that needs to be accomplished. And sometimes keeping artistic people on track is very difficult. And that's off the category. One nice thing I can say, the Catterley, if you remember, well, in Hawaii, she rented the PAs a house right on the bluffs of uh, the ocean. And that was just her thank you to the, you know, at the end of the movie for all, all of everybody's hard work. And I thought that, that was a really sweet thing. And they threw a big party there. I thought that was very nice. No, it was very nice. I remember. I remember that kind of. <laughs> well, it was a hell of a party, yeah. <laughs> She was one of the first people that I saw, you know, in prep and she she rolled in with those physical strips because this was back when it wasn't necessarily on the computer just yet. It was right on the line, but she brought in all these strips in. She needed a folding table. So I grabbed the folding table and, and helped her lay out all these strips. And I'm looking at it like, what is this? No, I had no idea. Uh, and I was still I'd only done that one movie and I, I was still grappling with like what a first AD actually did. But looking back at that, those few days that she kind of put those in order uh, was a huge impact on, on me. And then looking back, so definitely shout out to her and, and Rebnik, uh, Matt Rebnikoff and all the, uh, the AD crew, because that's tough. I mean, at the time, I don't even know how you guys figured out the, uh, the timing with the makeups and the, and the wardrobe and all that stuff. Uh, that had to be a feat in itself. That was Tony G and Alex Proctor and Rick Baker. and Lots of tests. Yeah, Kazuhiro basically was given full reign to design the apes and Matt Rose. It was, you know, wasn't Matt Rose involved in, in the orangutans? I feel like that's right. But it's like the times, getting the times right, because it was prosthetics and hair work and very fussy hair work and hair pieces. Uh, unfortunately, one of the reasons, oh, I, yeah, I do want to say this. People may wonder why it wasn't nominated for an Academy Award. And uh, I'm just going to say it. It was sandbagged by the hairstylists who were miffed that there was no hairstylist on the film. In those days, the voting, you could sandbag a film and they succeeded in sandbagging it. And it's caused a big reformation in Academy voting to make sure that that never happened again. And this is, if I may, Kevin, this is a good place to say that a makeup artist who is doing a character makeup that involves or has a tie-in with the hair can also do the hair. So what I'm saying is hairstylists never touched these apes. It was all makeup artists with hair skills, of course. So it was a bit backhanded for that to have happened, let's say. It just wasn't looking at the big picture, I think. And I think it was more about being left out than not being included, if that makes sense. You can read into that. Yes. The problem is, is that Rick and Kazu both demand total control. And also it was a budgetary thing. Each ape took 
two makeup artists and then each stunt ape took two makeup artists and you start doing the math and adding in a hairstylist that's basically kind of sitting there for most of the application process and then you've got you know they come in and they place the wig and they put it and it's not to denigrate what they do but in this case it was not economically feasible either uh, so it was both a budgetary and a logistical concern but rick that was one of the reasons why Gabriel was even, Gabe DeCunto was even on there. It's because he's brilliant at hair work. Lance Anderson, brilliant at hair work. You know, Bill and Doug, brilliant at hair work. That was a consideration that wasn't a consideration for Grinch. I want to jump out uh, to talk some more about the location work that went on. Out of that time at Rich Guys, it felt like we were out there for months, but that's probably an exaggeration. I don't think so. I think we were out there for months. <laughs> I don't like it. Oh, it was, it was particularly painful it was very cold out there and uh you know with the exception of the uh the u.s navy doing uh some fantastic flying stuff over yeah that. i remember that yeah because all their families were extras on the you know that's right yeah because we had that production trailer like that would look down at you guys and they would they would zoom the set and like that trailer went, oh my god <laughs> ross fang would be with binoculars looking out during lunch one day, I walked up onto a, a small hill behind base camp and counted the number of working trailers. I didn't, you know, there were three tents, two base camps, one for humans, one for apes, but I counted the working trucks and I'd never seen anything like it or since, quite frankly. I've been on some big things, Kevin, you too, we all have, but there were 72 working trucks in base camp and I'll never forget it. 72. Our rigging crew spent a week and they had four or five full-size generators powering base camp you know especially with heaters and, and everything going on and it was as big a job as rigging the set if not bigger at some point fox sent out a a helicopter to film base camp because they made the assertion i you know i couldn't confirm or whatever but they said it was the biggest base camp that had ever been assembled at the time, ever anywhere. And I, I, I tend to believe that because it Me was, too. it took, it was like a mile long. It was massive, massive. I was probably five or 600 feet up in the air. Yeah. It was, it was on that whole uh, call. It was a breakwater to keep the, you know, floodwaters from ruining those pinnacles. But that was a hell of, I, I walked it one day just out of curiosity. And I was like, no, oh, that's, takes a longer time to walk base camp than it did to walk to the set. It's true. And I remember it's one of the only times that makeup, the makeup department had gators to get from point A to point B. We actually had little gas and battery powered vehicles to get over the hill and dale and, and everything. Stephen, I have a question. Uh, in watching the film today, did we shoot a lot of day for night at the Pinnacles? Did we, or did we actually do after Lake Powell, did we not do like night shoots out there? No, I don't think we did any, we, we just, see, we tended to show up in the morning at night because we'd, <laughs> yeah. we'd leave at 4.30 in the morning to go out there. And I just remember uh, yes. being fairly uh, grumpy about all that. <laughs> it will make you grumpy, yes. Oh, well, we had it. We had a couple of caterers and yeah, it was, it was, it was all day work. I mean, the, the big thing that was the fight of over that thing was, they were blowing a lot of dust around and they chose something that wasn't really, it was illegal. Actually, it was, they used a silica compost thing that was for cement laying to blow around in the air. And uh, well, the locals who were sucking up that we just walked away from the set. Once they started filming, we stayed away from it and we were, you know, not really the issue, but the locals took issue with it because they got the packages from special effects that said you not to breathe this stuff and they had problems and there was a giant lawsuit for, over all that shit and uh they were taken to the mat about it i think the original thought was that it was going to be fuller's earth which is basically just clay but they got fuller's earth from the home depot supply or lowe's or whatever it was a, it was a cement additive is what it was you know it ended up being a, a contractual and whereas beauty clay does not have any silicate in it, that stuff did. And they ended up replacing it with walnut dust. Walnut dust, yep. Well, only once we returned to LA Center did they do that. And that was for the final battle sequence. Yeah. Well, the ship sailed at that point. And, uh, you know, that, that, was a, that was a giant legal action. 
we shot at the Sony tank as well, uh, the underwater sequence. Kevin Grievous was the ape under there in the contact lenses. And the first ape head that comes up, that's actually him in makeup, not a dummy. Uh, there was also an ape dummy in there, but Kevin was in that tank at the bottom. It was pretty crazy. And that Sony tank was used in Jaws and almost uh, so many great. It's a big freaking. Sadly, it's gone now, but. Uh, Is it? Oh. Yeah, they tore it out. Yeah, it was I, it was cool because it had portholes so you could kind of watch from underneath and see the underwater stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it was cool and that was cool whoever designed that tank i don't know who designed it but the fact that it did have portholes that you can actually see what was going on was kind of brilliant yeah there's camera ports so it was good it was a pretty well designed deal that tank uh was legendary for how many things that it did it had been there since probably the 40s but it, they tore it out i don't remember the tank was the tank towards the end of the shoot as well just before or after hawaii i'm pretty sure late reshoot or added scenes thing i wasn't around for the tank i was around for the bel air uh the video chats from outer space between Wahlberg and uh was that the video feeds the video feeds yes yes bel air yeah i got a call from jack saying hey stevie we're just gonna do some girls with bikinis around the pool some reshoots for for apes and i said well, what do you mean it's and he goes it's going to be easy we don't have anything i go tell me what we have on the truck and he goes well just in case we got all these lights <laughs> and i said i go how about just in case we get some guys <laughs> and he goes no we're not going to do anything i go why are we getting the lights <laughs> and he goes it's just going to be you and me don't worry about it well of course you know it was june so it was clouded over and and you know philippe says i i, I need some i need some lights <laughs> And I'm basically the, the only guy carrying like six K's up the hill by myself. And, and I'm pissed. The grips are being kind and they're setting up the lights, but I'm hauling them up the hill. And at some point I've got a six K ballast on my shoulder. And cause there's stairs, you know, like every Bel Air mansion, it's not designed for filming. And I hear from the garage where they've put up a craft service. I hear Jack gaffer and he goes, Stevie, he sees me walking by with a 6K ballast on my shoulder. I'm pouring sweat. And he goes, you got to try this guacamole. It's amazing. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to kill you right now. <laughs> we needed four guys, you know. <laughs> anyway, it's become a legendary thing. All the 20 years later, people say to me, Stevie, you got to try the guacamole. <laughs> I love that. I only have one Jack story. I just remember in pre in prep, everybody was so frantic in the office and kind of running around. And he was just standing there with his coffee going, I'm ready. I'm ready right now. I can shoot tomorrow. I'm ready. <laughs> at that point, I was just like, this guy's just calm, cool, and collect. You know, he's, he's a great friend of mine. I talk to him every couple of weeks. So, Hey, Kevin, you talked earlier about some filming that took place in England as well when they're doing the ruined interiors. But that was that was also late. Yes. It was at the James Bond stage. The, I believe it was Pinewood. And it was my first experience working in England. And Tony G made sure that everybody that needed to be there was there. Sorry, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> it was quite an experience. The biggest headache we had was having to do converters for all our equipment because we were using all these electrical irons for the apes and we had to have special converter boxes because we heard legendary stories about overtaxing the electrical system and frying your own equipment the english makeup artists were in hairstyles they were extremely friendly and extremely uh, i don't know what it would be like today it's like a lot of location places have been ruined over the years by people becoming more protectionists uh, of their turf but at that point it was it was just great to be there and it was great to be doing makeup in England uh, and we had some downtime we had downtime to uh, go see things and do things in fact our whole crew was almost wiped out by a scenic bus that uh, we were on the uh, one of the bridges going over the Thames and the driver up to that point was really upset about the traffic and how slow it was. And this guy in front of him was like holding him up and everything. And we start out over the bridge and we were on a double decker red bus. And we look over to the, to the left and we see this truck hit this light post. 
Now this light post has a top on it that's like, you know, 15 feet wide. And all of a sudden it goes over to our side and starts rolling towards our freaking bus. And it was like, and it was one of those, like what's become legendary in the films. It stops literally like a foot away from the bus. And I, all I could think of was Deborah Patino and myself on the, on the upper deck, Tony G and Stephen Prouty and all these other great makeup artists and Gabriel DeConto are all going to be wiped out, you know, in this bus accident in England. Thank God it didn't happen, but it was the scariest thing that ever happened. That and the flight to Flagstaff. That's what I remember. Yes. <laughs> that remember was a pretty good flight. Yeah. In fact, before the turbulence, um, there were, I think Rick Baker said there are 72 or 70 some odd makeup artists on this flight. If it goes down, the <laughs> face of makeup in the motion picture industry has changed forever. And lo and behold, in our approach to Flagstaff, it got, it was one of the, in fact, Bill Corso was busy throwing up next to me. Absolutely. It was a it was a rough one. And I do I do remember some screaming on <laughs> that landing. There was some, there was some screaming. <laughs> yeah, I was on, I was on that. The jet was too big for the airport. That's right. It was. Yeah, it was rocky. Well, they circled around the airport several times. I guess they were assessing whether they could do it or not. And they decided to do it. <laughs> oh, and we used up every last bit of the runway. And at the end of the runway was the crash truck with all the fire oh no when i saw that i kissed the ground because i was out of the plane at that point and i, I got down on my head i kissed the ground they were laughing you know firemen <laughs> have a good sense of humor and i go it was pretty funny huh wasn't it and he goes yeah we never saw a jet that big land here before oh, that's <laughs> i go that's probably a good reason he go oh no yeah we're never going to have another one like that again you know? <laughs> I, I, kevin i don't mean to derail england i just you just re reminded me of that that was terrifying i'll never forget that <laughs> england was the interior of of the oberon in the ruined state the the ruined pod set everything that was at the clean version of it you said it was at la center it was la center yeah but yeah, it was very remarkable. I mean, walking into that James Bond set, which is like an airline hangar, is just like there's a sense of tradition. But that was also early calls and, and crazy stuff. I'm glad I got to work on it. It was an experience. I came to California in, in the 90s. So it was like uh, a decade into my, uh, even though it was released in 2001, we shot it during 2000, right? 2000. Yeah. You know, people forget. It's like with those films, computers were still like megabytes instead of gigabytes and terabytes and CGI. Forget about it. Almost everything's physical, practical. These days, you know, a crushed plexiglass hall would be no problem. But in those days, you know, you're right. It's like that's a disaster. But now they just say, eh, we'll generate a new one. Green tape. Yeah. <laughs> You guys mentioned uh, Paul Giamatti and Tim Roth in, in passing with some of the challenges of their makeup. Share with me any other actor stories you guys have from this shoot. Hello, Bonham Carter, I, who I drove around, was super nice. And back then, I, I mean, I lived off my petty cash for the most part because uh, I was so broke. And I remember having, you know, she wanted coffee and I remember having X amount and just hoping she didn't get anything too extravagant or expensive because I'm the PA with no petty cash that can't even buy her a coffee. And I remember going... Hey, if you had money, you know, if maybe you can spot, you know, trying to work out some way for her to spot me, which is a great way to get fired. But, <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> but I remember seeing Catherine Keener and I know I come off like such a Hollywood fan here, but I remember seeing Catherine Keener in the Starbucks and they just talked and I'm like, you know her. And she was like, no, you know, when you're, when you're known, you just know everybody. That's kind of how it works. <laughs> that That's my Hello Bonham Carter story. She was su super fun to drive around. You know, going back to Douglas, your story earlier about counting the trailers, when you said 72 trailers, were four of them Mark Wahlberg's? Like he had the muscle right? trailer. He had a yeah, muscle trailer. He had the gym. He had the gym, right? Yep, yep. And I, I, it's funny you say that because I think he had a trailer and I think there was yet another trailer for his entourage, his, his peeps, his folks, his crew. I don't know. But yeah, he had several trailers. Well, they'd all work out together and you know but that was you know when entourage got big i remember looking back going oh i remember eric weinstein i remember e. i kind of remember uh the turtle character kind of remember the uh the drama character 
I worked on the first season of Entourage, and that is a podcast for another day. <laughs> we won't, right. We're not going to tell all the <laughs> stories on this one. I remember David Warner, and he was just such a gentleman. And in in a very mock tone, he said, he, let's see if I can get it right. He came down and he said, if these people knew who I think I am, they'd be down on the knee. <laughs> and it was just so funny coming out of his mouth. And he was so, he was not a young man. I mean, he's still working, you know, and he's like, what, in his late 90s now. And it was a joy to do that makeup for Rick. Uh, and then watching him work on set. I still remember his his line when he his first line when he comes down into the into the basement. Live humans, <laughs> my house. <laughs> we could also probably mention Glenn Shaddix, who uh, that may have been one of his last roles. I think he plays the giant uh, uh, orangutan, and he comes off very well with it. You know, he, it, it's like what he did was so understated. And yet I think they dubbed a lot of his lines because I think his teeth, he, he didn't quite master his teeth, but it becomes a very understated performance. They also had Charlton Heston in makeup too. And I think Bill Corso did that makeup as well. Joel Harlow, I believe. Bill and Joel. Yeah. Uh, Cause Joel took over f- for you. Yes. I moved on uh, in a roundabout way to uh, help Fred Blau with the Tim Roth double, the fade double. And Joel stepped in to help with Paul Giamatti and whatever Bill was doing, which was in turn Charlton Heston. That was a difficult day with Charlton Heston. I mean, he was, it was only in for a day and mm-hmm. he was having a hard time, uh, you know, he was getting on in years and he had his, his lines on his chest and they're having a hard time getting him out of the frame. He uh, couldn't remember his lines at all from what I understand. I, re- I remember being on, I think we were doing second unit that day and everybody was to stay away from that. Yeah, they, they cleared pretty much everybody out except the, those of us who were hanging lights and had to be there. But Didn't they take his teeth out because he couldn't enunciate with them? I feel like, I feel like he's, that, that scene is shot with Charlton and he has no ape teeth. So he's he, he's sunken in. It works. Don't get me it's wrong. Cold, so it works. Yeah, but yeah. It, it could be. It didn't detract from me. It's still, you know, you well, still. It was a pleasure working with the man. I mean, geez, you know, and he went to the premiere and it was very, you know, he was very generous with himself as far as being, a, you know, knowing that, he, you know, everybody loved him. But it was curious, though, that his, his part was. The gun is hidden in the jug because the gun is evil. And and, and you're like, Chuck, <laughs> you, you're like the gun. You're the gun guy. You know? <laughs> you know, they were trying to do the make him the Dr. Zayas character and it didn't really work. And Heston sells it. I listen in revisiting the film. I remember my initial disappointments in watching the film, but I enjoyed watching it. I enjoyed rewatching it. I, I can appreciate it now uh, in retrospect. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. Just remembering, oh, that, and oh, that's Ridgecrest, and oh, that's Hawaii. And it was definitely such an important film for me because it was just, yet again, seeing the best people do the best work. And pretty much everybody was normal. You'll find some irony in that uh, one of the Whoville Who's is my girlfriend now. <laughs> <laughs> just out of really? total coincidence yeah she ended up drifting into my life on the show that i'm on now she's the health and safety tester uh <laughs> testing lady and we just met and you know it's uh, congratulations she just posts she posted something with all the the who's in you know some photograph from back in the you know they got everybody together and that is superb. I know it's an eight podcast, but can can I tell you one, just because we have makeup, it's a makeup story. Remember on the Grinch when it was late at the night, Jim Carrey was doing something with Tambor and he basically went and bit off his nose. Ron Howard was like, I guess that's a wrap. Um, <laughs> yeah, they, they looked at me and said, can you repair that? And I went, no. I think we all were like, we're like yeah, or they were. <laughs> well, maybe Skid, you can do a uh, Grinch uh, spotlight one day. Let's <laughs> get people back to talk about Grinch. Guys, talking about apes has been a lot of fun. Really enjoyed everybody being here today. Well, thanks for having Thank us. Thank you, Skid. It was very fun. Listeners, if you're saying to yourself, wow, I wish they had more to say about Planet of the Apes, well, this is the week for you. This coming Sunday, January 9th, Ryan and I will be guests on the Bad Movies Podcast, 
where host Gianni DeMaia revisits movies that got bad reviews to determine if the reviews are justified. Once again, that's the Bad Movies Podcast, publishing this Sunday, January 9th. I hope you'll check it out. Another announcement, this year will be our third annual Oscar series, where working professionals discuss the Oscar nominees in their category of expertise. Those episodes will release in March, and I'm calling it Season 11. Until then, I hope you enjoy what I've got lined up over the next two months for Season 10. And if you're new to the podcast, I'd encourage you to check out the rest of our catalog. It's easy to peruse all past episodes at the website, below the line, oneword.biz. That's B-I-Z. We're also on IMDb, so you can cross-reference the film credits of my guests. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and rate us if you like what you hear. If you've got questions or comments, you can send email to skid, S-K-I-D, at belowtheline.biz. If you're on Facebook, you can find photos and other behind-the-scenes materials at Podcast Below the Line. And finally, you can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Pod Below the Line. Thanks to Curtis Five for our music and John Juan for our logo. The logo is available on t-shirts, mugs, and stickers at redbubble.com. Loyal listeners, thanks for sticking with us in the new year. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell your friends. We'll be back again next week. The one thing that I would bring up about the actual primate, the, the chimps, you know, the, the Jonah and I forget the name of the other, you know, they were twins. And at LA Center, they were featured. And you're talking about the actual animals. The actual chimps. Yeah, the, the, they're juvenile chimps. And they had a whole regiment where, I guess with chimps, whatever, and it's kind of like that with all intelligent mammals. Whatever you're doing, they get to do, or they get angry with you. And so craft service was a thing. And they let the chimps on the craft service truck once or twice a day and they could pick one thing they were like children they, you know you can't have it all you get one thing. <laughs> and one of them picked a coca-cola and there's a photograph of said chimp on the tailgate and it was so excited about the coca-cola that he had a big grin on his face and an erection with his coke. <laughs> true story the photograph coke gives life <laughs> and the other one liked a chocolate bar and that was they were very specific about what they liked, but at lunchtime they'd clear out the stages and they'd put security at the doors so nobody would interfere. But I went in there one day and I watched what they were doing. And they, as soon as they closed the doors, the chimps would storm up the stairs to the perms in about one second. And they'd swing from the perms 30 feet up in the air. And I said to, I said to, you know, their handlers, I said, you know, aren't you concerned about them falling? And he goes, they don't fall. I go, well, are you not worried about that? He goes, they don't fall. <laughs> and I, okay, you know, I mean, they, they were, it was their jungle gym, except 30 feet in the air. Very interesting. I love that. Yeah. Jane Goodall's uh, and uh, uh, Fossey's, uh, Diane Fossey's research about how gentle gorillas are and how angry and shitty chimps are uh was just coming to light and they actually took pains to make Thade the villain uh and the moment where he goes apeshit uh, literally no pun intended uh oh you know jumping on wire work from you know wall to wall that was something that they wanted to put in there that actually the roles were reversed that you know gorillas were gentle and chimps are vicious and chimps will kill you and tear your face off it's like <laughs> they seem to want to go for the face the genitals fingers yeah. and toes you know they yeah. they want to punish you yeah. yeah they're vicious didn't they have some like primate gloves that they put on deep roy at some point wasn't he there was somebody else in the pod at some point when they had to do uh they didn't like the ape didn't do the the well, they, they couldn't because they tear everything apart when we the first day of filming we did all the like all of the real apes or primates in cages on the one stage we had all these keno flows and all this stuff rigged to light them and they just were ripping it all apart as fast <laughs> as we could fix it and and it, and they just weren't playing the game there was one adult chimp that was in the far cage uh, farthest from camera 
and he was he was crapping in his hand and and as soon as they'd roll it, you know they made the trainers the uh you know the the lab people and he'd be being in the guy in the back of the head with his shit. and 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 they'd have to cut of course because you know he, that doesn't work in the movie and you know <laughs> and he'd have to scold the the ape and the ape was very amused with himself and you know, there yeah. were any other apes there were there there were no gorillas or orangutans they had an orangutan one orangutan they had mostly chimps i don't think they had any gorillas though ultimately yeah the chimps are maybe more vicious but if a gorilla has a bad hair day there's no stopping <laughs> you know all these uh not so nice stories about chimpanzees fortunately i think they will make the podcast because I'm unlikely, I think, to get a season desist letter from any of the chimpanzees that were on the film. But uh, I might uh, put this stuff after the credits uh, just in case. 